Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, April 15th, 2022. I'm Noah Rothman. John is out today, but with us, as always, is executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, Noah. I was waiting for the hi. Forgot the <laughs> hi. Uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, it's like Pavlovian. We have to wait for the hi, and then we say, hi, Noah. <laughs> hi, Christine. And with us today, <clears throat> in John's absence, the illustrious Eli Lake. Hi, Mr. Lake. Shalom. Shalom. Um, I wanted to talk, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but I wanted to open the podcast with some news from the front. Um, over, uh, I think early last night, we got official word from TASS news agency that the Moskva, the uh, missile cruiser that is the flagship of the uh, Black Sea fleet is now at the bottom of the Black Sea. It has officially sunk, according to Russian news agency. It was, we don't know what happened officially, but somehow the thing blew up and ammunition on it exploded, giant hole. And it was powering its way to Sevastopol and then it was getting towed. And then there was a storm and the thing sunk. So it's a series of accidents, according to uh, Russia, according to um, Ukraine, they used some Neptune anti-ship missiles to target the thing, hit it, and decommissioned the, the, the ship. It's, it, they attacked it and sunk it. If true, it would be the, the worst uh, event for a, a modern uh, blue, blue water Navy since the Sheffield was sunk uh, during the Falklands War. Um, <clears throat> big coup for Ukraine. I think the evidence suggests that more, more evidence suggests that it was Ukrainian action that was responsible for this. And it's indicative of developments on the ground that suggest not only is Western support working um, and Ukraine's uh, efforts to fight this war are uh, producing results, um, but that there's a shift in um, not only in posture uh, on the part of Ukrainian forces, but on on Western um, on, on their Western benefactors. We're now shipping what Ukraine has been asking for for some time, heavy weaponry to the front. We're no longer focusing on Javelin missiles and end laws and, and, and to a lesser extent, anti-air, um, which was the first phase of this campaign, stop the mechanized assault on Ukrainian cities. That seems to have succeeded. Now what Ukraine wants is heavy weaponry of the sort that you use to fight conventional battles with. They want attack helicopters. They want long-range missiles and long-range artillery. They want armored personnel carriers and tanks, the sort of stuff that you use to fight a peer competitor on a battlefield, set-piece battles. Um, that's what Ukraine wants to do in the East. And to the extent that they're getting some support from uh, the West to that effect, uh, they might be able to pull it off. Czech Republic is sending heavy armor and infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, the UK is transferring anti-aircraft missiles and loitering ammunition, loitering munitions, drones that and missiles that loiter over targets. And um, the Biden administration announced yesterday, or I think Wednesday, actually, that they were sending uh, MI-17 transport helicopters and uh, 150 millimeter howitzers and 40,000 rounds um, to the front. It's not enough, but it's a nod in the direction of what Zelensky is asking for. And... I want to ask you, Eli, if you think that this is the beginning of a trend towards more aggressive involvement on the West, and if you think that's right, because I do, I've changed my opinion. Uh, I was initially uh, um, shared the conventional wisdom that escalatory behaviors um, 
should be very cautiously engaged in and we should be circumspect to the extent that um, we can support Ukraine. We want to do so, but not in so far as it puts Vladimir Putin in a corner that forces him to engage in reckless behaviors that may include direct engagement with a NATO ally, um, intentionally or otherwise. However, over the course of the last 50 days, we've seen uh, limits on Russia's capabilities and limits on, on Russia's um, recklessness. They've, they've sort of defined themselves uh, a series of red lines that they don't seem to want to cross. And we're testing the perimeters of this. It's all improvisatory. But I think the green light is here for us to, uh, how do I put it? I don't want to say um, provoke, but certainly to uh, test Russia's willingness to, um, to conclude the campaign that it set out to conclude because there, there really are indications. It's very early, it's very tentative. I don't wanna be Pollyannish about this, but there are indications that Ukraine could actually win. Absolutely. Um, well, a couple points. One is um, it's significant because related to what you're saying yesterday, we had a senior Biden administration official, William Burns, the CIA director in a speech for the first time from an official, I mean, everybody who follows this knows this is kind of lurking in the background, but mentioned the prospect of a tactical nuclear weapon uh, from Russia. Um, and this is all this is we, we've discussed this on the podcast. I know you guys have. This is part of Russian military doctrine that if their military is losing in a land war, they would use tactical nuclear weapons in such a way that would not target cities, but would target uh sort of land forces, a sort of weapon of terror, maybe a demonstration. Um, it is part of their military doctrine. It has certainly been hinted at by Vladimir Putin, and it's been discussed explicitly in the state-run media, um, and certainly a signal. There was a reference to deploying nuclear forces in the Baltics in, result, in response to decisions to begin possibly the process of Sweden and Finland applying for NATO membership. Um, so all of that is we I should say I, I don't want to interrupt yeah. you, but the, uh, the Swedish uh, government announced last night that they intend to apply for membership in July or June. That's right. I mean, I think there's a process they have to go through through a parliament and I'm not sure where that is, but that's right. So um, now there are nuclear forces, according to I, I, my understanding, is there are Russian nuclear forces in the Baltics already. But the point is, is that they are raising the, the Russians. The are the ones who are, yes, the Russians are the ones that raise the prospect of um the use of potential nuclear uh, weapons. Um, so we saw in the beginning of the war, they, they you know, Putin raised the uh, nuclear alert by one. Um, so that has always been there um, and it's a terrible prospect, but the reason why Russia would use a tactical nuclear weapon or for that matter, chemical weapons in some sort of, you know, making things worse is not necessarily because the United States or European countries are shipping heavier weapons to Ukraine or more advanced weapons to Ukraine. They would do so if it just so happens the Ukrainians were successful. Now, the irony here is why are the Ukrainians successful? They're not, they, they were successful in the first phase of the war because they countered a traditional military offensive with the kinds of equipment that you just outlined that the Ukrainians are now requesting with agile small unit sort of swarm warfare, which is to say that they would 
you know, take advantage of long stretches of Russian convoys and attack the first tank and this, and then attack the kind of rear vehicle, and it would cause this sort of confusion, and then there would be a turkey shoot in between. It's incredibly successful. That smaller, agile kind of, you know, maybe ten-person combat teams with the right kinds of anti-tank and anti-aircraft weaponry were able to defeat these sort of traditional tactics, which was a disaster in a lot of ways. So it's interesting that now the Ukrainians are looking to try to fight the second phase of the war, as you said, as a near peer competitor. Another interesting thing about what happened, and it's worth noting, is that um, the Russian military, uh, and, and, and I know you know this because you studied this in grad school, <laughs> under the Soviet Union, the story was that when it came to exporting weapons systems, the Russian, the Soviets were very good at the basic stuff. The AK-47 is a marvel of sort of modern, you know, combat engineering. It's, a, it's a, in terms of a rifle, it can withstand all kinds of tradition, conditions without jamming. That's why it was so popular in African wars and, and Asian wars and everything like that. But good luck training the Syrian Air Force on how to use, you know, your MiGs effectively, or for that matter, your air defense systems effectively as the Israelis exposed in the last decade. So it's interesting because even despite this, the Russians had developed a reputation among other things for having very good missile defense, um, especially kind of tactical missile defense. Now, if it's true that the Ukrainians sunk a, a Russian cruiser ship you know, that's uh, what is I guess it's a destroyer or a cruiser. So I, I don't want a missile cruiser, I think the missile cruiser. OK, if they destroyed, then that means that uh, Russian missile defense, you know, that those 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 ships have missile defense systems. It failed. It was defeated in some way. That's very significant. That's a lesson that NATO and every other um, every other adversary from Russia is going to be looking at and studying that and just sort of understanding, OK, maybe these are not as good as we thought. The irony is that now I think, um, don't hold me to this, it's Slovakia. It's one of the Eastern European countries is now sending S-300 systems to Ukraine, which they've been requesting now for a month. Now, wouldn't it be ironic if the S-300s were effective against the Russian Air Force, right? Because the, you know, the point, you know, so, so that's another interesting question here, which is the um, use of this sort of, of Russian technology against Russian technology. and. Um, and, and then finally, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think the other factor here that we have to consider is that the, the, there's a huge advantage that Ukraine has in this war. And that is Ukrainian citizens, even Russian speaking Ukrainian citizens uh, want to repel this invasion. And that means that they have eyes and ears in a way that the Russians really don't. I mean, we talked, I think about this before the Russian Mil like military communication channels have been compromised in part because they decided early on that they were going to hit cell phone towers and they weren't using encrypted comms. But it's difficult, even with uh, more money, more funds, and, and maybe and probably better technology in Ukraine to kind of get a sense of the whole battlefield. And Ukraine has an enormous advantage in, in just that they have a lot of citizens who hate Russia and are willing to use their cell phones and their cell phone cameras. And and, and, and allow military commanders to sort of know where the bad guys are. Um, so those are advantages that are sort of not about the sort of having weaponry, but it is interesting sort of what they're requesting. And sometimes, I'll just end it on this, Noah, and I'd love to hear everyone else, is that sometimes you kind of get the impression that the Ukrainians are just asking for a laundry list of stuff because they just want to have 
they want they want to sort of show Russia that there is this commitment from the West, right? They just want to sort of say, you know, it's 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 the prestige of getting, um, you know, when they were asking for the fighter jets, it's not just that they wanted to use the fighter jets to repel the Russian air assault. They also wanted to sort of have that as a signal that you know that the that the West is invested in their victory. So I think that's important psychologically. You reminded me of uh, an aspect of Western the, the second stage here of Western support that's very. Uh, very important and also sort of exposes uh, the extent to which those of us who believe the Biden administration should have never done that. Um, I was among them because one of the things that the, uh, this administration has opened the door to is sending uh, advanced platforms, Western platforms that require training to use. Uh, so initially in this conflict, that was sort of off the table in part because you can't you got to send them Soviet era equipment because they know how to use that. They don't know how to use Western stuff. So that's just easy. And it's plug and play. And second, we don't want to send them equipment that's too difficult to operate because maybe then we have to have advisors on the ground or they have to be transferred to Poland to learn it. It's, all that's escalatory. And we don't want to do that sort of thing. And now they're opening the door to it, which um, sort of opens the door to a lot of other stuff. So and, and exposes the hypocrisy of their initial uh recalcitrance and, and reticence to to provide these platforms what other platforms are we capable of sending to ukraine that require western training or even western people on the ground to operate um well that- it's, a, it's not just that though but it's because in the beginning of the war 50 days ago the intelligence assessments were that ukraine the kiev would fall in in a few days so what's the point of sending advanced american equipment only to be captured by the Russian army, which is, by the way, exactly what happened with Afghanistan. So um, now that Ukraine is showing that they actually they could win the war, it's a different kind of question. So it's no longer that we're just, you know, we're, we're just delaying the transfer of our of our advanced weaponry to the Russians. Um, and in that respect, I think it's it's worth the shot. And and um, Again, I, the Ukrainians have a chance to win, and I think they have certain factors that are going to be very, very difficult. Um, so I agree with you. Let's let's get them everything they need. Uh, Abe, I need a I'm, devil's I'm still, well, what's that? I need a devil's advocate here because I, I'm no longer that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I well I, I'm not yeah. the I'm not the right person to uh, to Welcome preach to ca- the dark to side now. Caution on this one. Yeah, yeah, because I, I've been I've been, you know, leaning towards uh, Eli's position, you know, kind of the whole time. But. But I well, this isn't devil's advocate, but this this throws a wrinkle into things. Last time Eli was on, we were talking about the. The unlikelihood that um, whatever the outcome, it would be, quote, clean. Um, That's still true, isn't it? Uh, Even if even if Ukraine um, were to were to now take on Russia in these in these conventional set battles, and rout Russian forces. What's Putin's next move? I mean, it's I still don't think I, this is with or without the introduction of a, of a, a tactical uh, nuclear weapon. I still think it's extraordinarily unlikely. He says, oh, we lost. Let's retreat. That's over. But you can impose that conditions on an adversary, whether they want to accept it or not. Like, for example, you know, you didn't necessarily have to go right to unconventional weapons. Everybody's been waiting for the strategic bombing campaign, right, with uh, unguided munitions. That's the big escalatory posture that they could adopt if things really go south, right? But then you also have to have strategic bombers over Ukrainian skies. And if you have a lot of S-300 surface-to-air missile batteries on the ground, 
that's a risk that you might necessarily not necessarily want to take with your forces. I mean, we've seen quite a lot of uh, evidence that suggests that the skies are still contested. Um, and so maybe they don't have any other options. And the West is, hasn't been ambiguous about really, well, it's been ambiguous about how it would respond tactically to an unconventional weapon, but not strategically. Strategically, you can expect a pretty robust response, maybe not a kinetic response. I think that's still off the table, but just about everything else really isn't, up to and including deployments on the ground in Western Ukraine. Uh, I don't think that would be ruled off the table in that in the event of something that serious. And so what options does Moscow have? Eventually, they're going to run up against just the material material conditions that will prevent them from executing a, a retaliatory response that would be effective. Otherwise, they're just they're just flailing. And at that point, you just you really do just just cash in all your chips. I know it's hard for us to imagine this sort of thing, but failures of imagination have what got us to this place that we just we couldn't anticipate Russia invading. We couldn't see them retreating from Kiev. They have to take Kiev, so they will. But they can't. They couldn't. It was not on the table. So they accepted defeat and retreated. Well, and that's where the failure of the both the foreign policy planning on in the Biden administration and the communication strategy of the Biden administration still continues to be in a kind of unconscionable state of disarray. So we had two Republican uh, the House members actually go and visit Ukraine. And I think they were the first um, uh, lawmakers to go, Steve Daines and Victoria Sparks. And they were pretty clear. It's like there's obviously evidence of war crimes here. You know, they were actually using the same kind of rhetoric that Biden has been using lately. Um, we're also seeing, for example, the, the poll numbers among Americans who still think we talked about this earlier this week. People still think we're not doing enough to help Ukraine. And also we have an amazing capability. If we do want to train Ukrainians in Ukraine or just across the border with sophisticated weaponry, that's why we have an intelligence service and special ops teams. We have so many well-trained members of our military who do exactly that. They go in and they come out and no one ever knows they were there. That's the point of those units. And I hope they're being deployed. I don't know. And that's not the kind of thing. I'm not that sure that they're them. not being deployed at this exactly, point. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, the reason I say that is just because I don't remember anyone in a military Wonkville saying, wow, you know, the Ukrainians, they have an amazing air defense system. I mean, right. I just there's got to be something after the fact. After the fact, though, I remember people saying, well, obviously, this is the, the, the second best air defense systems in Europe, right? Why no one you know, said no. that before the war. <laughs> right. So somebody was jamming. Uh, somebody yes. was was, was yes. conducting electronic warfare. It may have been the Ukrainians. I mean, I don't know, because we rarely get actual you know, battles where we can test these kind of concepts and so forth. But I it's I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was somebody who was helping in a very, very stealthy sort of way. Also, there we know from uh, David Sanger's reporting that there was certainly a lot of help for, on cyber defense, which is to say that there were lots of efforts from the Russians to try to disable the military, you know, communications and other sorts of things. And they were they were successfully defended. And I think that that probably did have some help from, from the West. All right. So from crises abroad to crises at home, Christine, it's an emergency. All right. We're in the middle of an emergency. The state of emergency has been extended for 90 days. The the Biden administration announced uh, Wednesday that the uh, state of emergency around the covid crisis would be extended for another 90 days into mid-July because, you know, cases are rising. And that's it. 
And that's literally no. it. I couldn't, yeah, I didn't have an actual and that something yeah. else. Cases so are rising, here, therefore we're, we're just going to be doing this in perpetuity. So this is my new, uh, this has been my obsession, as you all know, and, and I appreciate uh, our listeners indulging me for a minute, but the real long COVID is the constant ex- extension of emergency powers at the state, federal, and local level. That's the long COVID. Wait a minute. What about. are you suggesting? <laughs> How dare you? You don't have a medical degree. You haven't I don't. conducted long I don't even know studies. what a woman is. I mean, it's really, it's so confusing, but here's the thing. I started looking at this because I, you know, I'm involved in some parents groups that have been fighting to reopen schools and then to remove the masks. And so there's a lot of uh, not ignorance, but just difficulty in finding the answer to the question of when does our local state of emergency end and what does that mean? When does the federal one end and what does that mean? And so the more you deep dive, what you realize the state of emergency at the federal level is continually being extended so people can spend money mainly on Medicaid, uh, mainly on, uh, well, two reasons. One is to continue to allow uh, states to spend Medicaid spending. It's costing billions every time, every month that we extend this emergency is costing taxpayers money. It's the assumption is we want to keep people on on Medicaid who otherwise might not qualify or have to reapply. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a legitimate argument for doing it, but it's not how they're selling it. They're selling it as, oh my God, it's a COVID emergency, but it's really about spending. The other thing is that once you end the emergency, uh, vaccines will no longer be covered <laughs> under emergency use authorization. So that throws a wrench in the works of how you then, then approval processes change and, and the, the discussion over whether places can mandate vaccines and, and such changes. But I actually think this is a it's the creation of a if it's, it's a very slow moving bureaucratic effort to expand entitlements is what this is. That's what it's become, because if you it, if it was tied to deaths and hospitalizations, it would have ended already. Republicans have since like January or February been calling on the federal government to end this constant state of emergency. It's about money now. It's about money. Now you can make an argument that we need to continue to do that just like Democrats are doing about student loans saying people are suffering, we need to spend money, but they're being dishonest about it. And they're being stealthy about it. it you know, This doesn't make news now, these constant extensions. They've just been extending, extending, and no one seems to care. We should care about the federal government putting us in a permanent state of emergency. It is bad for democracy. <laughs> yeah, so what you're arguing is essentially that in the absence of the state of emergency, the legislature would have to do all this stuff. Yes. Or regulatory they, agencies would have to be pushed by the executive branch, which manages them to do certain things. And right. because the, there is no emergency, these arms of the federal government and the legislative branch are being lethargic. Yes, because look, hospitals. That's there's, what there's, they're supposed to do. This is this yes. is how this stuff is designed to operate. Well, and they've bumped. Look, the emergency has allowed hospitals to get a bump in Medicaid payments. I mean, there's money. There's big money at stake for large interest in our economy right now on this. So it's not a joke to them. But the fact I, I, I am just struck constantly by how both at the federal level with the Biden administration and at the local level with people like my my incompetent mayor, they they're not being honest with people about why this emergency needs extending. They're either out outright lying, saying, well, you know, case like you just said, cases are rising, but hospitalizations and deaths are down, or they just simply hope no one notices. And I really think it's time for the American people at the local and at the federal level to start noticing emergency powers, because these can and are currently being manipulated and abused by elected officials. Can I, can I offer a counterpoint? Sure. Christine, um, asking for citizens to notice emergency powers and question them is one of the most pernicious forms of disinformation and probably is orchestrated <laughs> by some kind of Kremlin uh, bot 
network. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that because after this podcast, I will be reporting you to the overlords at Google, Facebook, and Twitter. This is why I'm not Elon Musk will not save you. (laughs) I will not allow this disinformation to stand. (laughs) Sorry. Um, I also my Friday facetiousness. I also think just from a a misguided political standpoint, it's it's the administration's way of signaling. We've still got our eye on this. We still we're 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 doing something. Um, It's not sort of out of sync with what we were talking about, I think, yesterday or maybe two days ago, I don't recall about sort of the 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 Biden administration's um, communicate new communications strategy in, in sort of trying to point to assorted things that 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 sort of show he's doing things right uh, that was uh, supposed to be small uh, to and discreet people a national state of emergency is neither small nor discreet well that's well, true. and it's and it, and it goes to this the way that we are doing these things now so look if you say we have to lift this state of emergency we don't need it anymore people go no everybody needs time to like prepare for the end of the emergency i'm like they turned that thing on like a light switch before they're like no emergency today emergency tomorrow and now all these restrictions we can do the same thing to turn it off now yes will there be there'll be you know it will take time for everything to resettle but the argument that we have they did this with masking too oh we have to give everybody a month notice that we're going to remove masking mandates no you don't you just don't want to do it because it's a painful political decision that might have repercussions for you and i think that's the, the the fact that when even when the new york times reports on these states of emergency it's all about the money it's oh hospitals hospitals need more money we have to give them we promised them 2 months notice that's not policy that's just a choice that this administration is making and i think it should be challenged on that i think i just want to say i think it's also it's bad for democracy but it's it's also bad for um sort of our our culture here because the arbitrary nature of saying, oh, we're not in an emergency. Now we are an emergency, uh, as Noah wrote in a in a in a in a, in a related post this week. Um, you go to sleep one night um, with the understanding that you live in a, a covid hot zone uh, and then you wake up and that your your area has been declared sort of covid safe. Um, this degrades the legitimacy of all of of all these decisions and of the institutions behind them. Um, and it, it just sort of further corrodes public trust. So do you think w- that, that some of this can be explained by every pol- every political leader, uh, is, especially when dealing with something uncertain like COVID and future variants, wants to a little bit have it both ways. So they want to be able to say, if it gets worse, that, listen, we were taking all these steps, don't blame it on me. But they also want to be able to kind of credibly tell you know regular american citizens of which there's vast majority right now that you can kind of go back to normal and that's because of of our uh, leadership and yes. certainly biden has been on both sides of that and that in a way the emergency measures even though i agree with you this is a huge step are a way of of just butt covering right i mean it's just a way of sort of saying like well you know we did have the emergency measure in place in case this variant or the next variant really does become something serious. And Abe, you make an excellent point, which is that when you play games like this and you turn it on and you turn it off, you are you are eroding the credibility of any public health messaging on this. So, you know, you may think this is like a clever play, but in fact, you know, you, you are potentially going to take down the entire kind of public health messaging system. 
But it defines emergency down as well. Can I point to yeah, another totally. emergency that happened this week, which is the governor of Georgia declaring the supply chain crisis a state of emergency for his state. So you're going to start to see that it can it can go both ways. Right. So the Biden administration is like, well, we need to keep re-upping this emergency over and over again for all these reasons. OK, anybody can play that game. Anything can become a state of emergency. I mean, I, yeah. you know. It, that's the danger. There's a, there's a slippery slope, which I know conservatives are always looking for the slippery slopes. This one seems to me pretty clear. So if there's a if there the pursuit here is a political reward, I just don't see what the calculation is. Who's who's energized and motivated to go out to ratify this status quo? Okay, but in hold its on. favor. Where, Here's how because it could the be imbalance certainly favors people who oppose <laughs> these restrictions, and they're going to be far more energized, I would think, to uh, yes. register their dissatisfaction. Okay, no, I think you're right. But what is uh, so much of modern politics is about positioning, anticipating where you think the public will be in the future. If there is a terrible wave that the vaccines do not provide much protection for, and I'm not saying that I don't know, I'm not an epidemiologist, I don't know, but maybe there would be. And there certainly are plenty of people who are professional in the in the health messaging, but also the, the the actual epidemiological community who say that this is a real possibility, then keeping the emergency measures is a way of, even though it's unpopular now, it's a way of, it's a told you so in, in if, if you are anticipating in the future um, a worse variant. So yes, I agree with they, you. I was just going to say, but yeah. they never talk about the cost. It costs billions. I agree. This is the thing. Like, it, I agree with you that that's the messaging and that's the positioning. And, and then they'll look like, you know, they can yeah, crown themselves in right. glory. So I know it was unpopular, but I took an cost. unpopular decision yes. because we, we knew this wasn't over yet. That's And that's the whole CDC. That's the whole right. health bureaucracy. That's how they approach it. The problem, I think, is that we've now, they've, they don't understand how much credibility they've destroyed by going back and forth and turning on the switch and, and, and saying a bunch of things that didn't turn out to be true. And I also think, Noah, that you're right, that even if there is another wave, there's going to just people are fed up at this point. And it's, it, you know, I'm not entirely sure. Well, even if there that, is another wave, it's not going to be this wave. Well, no, that's one, no one. This is still Omicron. This is a variant of a variant, but it's still Omicron. And we right. lived through the Omicron wave, a crushing tidal wave of yes. infections over the course of two months, which had nothing even remotely close to the human toll that we experienced in earlier iterations of this disease. We're still dealing with Omicron and it is still mild and it is still very contagious and it'll have the exact same effects that it had uh, during the Omicron wave, which by the way, the CDC estimates has helped contribute to 95% of Americans having some immunity protection, natural or uh, acquired immunity to this virus. We're talking about imposing these restrictions for the benefit of perhaps 5% of the public who has somehow managed to evade all infections uh, naturally and all the opportunities they've had over the course of the last 18 months to protect themselves. This is utterly unjustified. You are trying to bend and shape society in ways that inconvenience a vast host for the benefit of a largely hypothetical segment of society. Uh, that to me seems politically suicidal. I suppose we'll learn in, in a few months, but by the time this we, we get around to re-extending this thing, and we're gonna re-extend it, let's be honest, they're not gonna get rid of this in mid-July. It's baked in the cake, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a primary issue for voters because COVID isn't anybody's priority anymore, save for maybe public health experts and their you know cable news bookings. But beyond that, it's no one else's priority. So it's just background radiation, but it's background radiation that only annoys 
It's not back, good, good background radiation. It's not like good economic news that, that doesn't really register, but subconsciously it's, it's still there and influencing your political decision-making processes. It's just bad and annoying. Unless you're a savvy Republican who can load this onto the list of bad economic uh, policy-making decisions that this administration has promoted since day one, and then point to inflation and point to all the other challenges that people are facing, the kitchen table issues, and go, this is part of this problem. Like this, the constant spending, the, the government just throwing so much money into a, into a, an economy that can't, that, that's already suffering from inflation, already suffering from all these other challenges. That's just bad, but that's the way Democrats spend. I mean, you could see it's the really message. It's really interesting. That- it's a complicated argument to make. So I don't yes. anticipate many people will make it. It requires, you know, you, you have to spend three sentences explaining it, which is three sentences yeah. too many, unless it's already intuitive. And as we, as I said, you know, COVID is just nobody's priority anymore. It just does not register on the list of priorities. So what Republican would spend spend their, you know, waste their breath trying to explain why it's an, an issue and matters. Um, I think there's just one more aspect to this that, I, that I've thought of. Um, as I've said before, in an emergency, anything goes. That's the sort of advantage of it to people who want to enact all sorts of change, um, who don't want to uh, be blamed for things. Um, the, it, by nature, it, it just suspends sort of the regular rules. Um, the longer there's a state of emergency, of, of official state of, of emergency, it's sort of the longer that that the administration and others can delay just plain old governing, you know, in a way. It's like, look, we're in the, we're still in the state of emergency here. We've got this going on, we've got COVID, going, you know, and 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 it's um, it's sort of it, it's sort of conti- you, you continue to get graded on a curve. Well, and they've done that with crime. Every time the crime stats right. are, are thrown in the face of a blue state uh, elected official, they're like, oh, but COVID, COVID emergency, so so disruptive. Because uh, they're, they're not actually answering the real problem, which is this, it, this was before COVID, all the problems, you know, the bail reform in particular and other policies. So they're doing that. That's absolutely right. Eli, this kind of dovetails with something you said you saw in uh, Politico um, recently with uh, an interview with Joe Biden's pollster, who uh, is probably the most imposed upon person in the country right now <clears throat> what did what did you uh, read well from it's this it's it's from politico uh it's like leading the playbook today this guy john anzalani and you know I, I i as far as these kinds of things go it's a pretty good interview because i think he you know he's he's being um fairly blunt um so he says a lot of things i mean the one thing the headline is this is like the worst environment I've seen in my 30 years as a political consultant for Democrats. Um, He does not, he says there's no indication that Biden will not run. And Biden of course has said he would. And I think that a lot of us feel that if Trump runs, there's no one else that could beat Trump other than Joe Biden. I'm like, really? I, I, I don't want Trump to run. I think everybody in this podcast doesn't want Trump to run, but I'm, I mean, I don't know if there's any guarantee of that at this point. And then, you know, he uh, he he's he also says that if they can just get if, if Biden and the Democrats can just give us I'll read the quote here. And so, you know, if we're able to do something, a skinny build back better or whatever on health insurance costs, prescription drug costs, elderly care, child care, that's a big deal because it will give Democrats a competitive advantage on what they're doing for working families. And it'll cut through. And this is the, the, the really revealing the inflation narrative, the Ukraine narrative, the Afghan narrative, the border narrative, etc. 
And right now we don't see that and we don't have that. So, I mean, listen, I don't think he's right that a that a, another entitlement bill is going to do the trick here. But he's acknowledging that there are a number of issues for voters, border economy. I mean, he didn't mention schools, but we could say that one, too, where the Democrats are underwater and it's a party problem, not just a Biden problem. Um, so it's it's revealing that, you know, Biden's own pollster in an interview with reporters is saying, like, this is, you know, the worst environment I've seen in 30 years. Uh, you know, nothing that the listeners of this podcast has, has, you know, you guys have been talking about this now for a while, but it's it's uh, it's it, it certainly the Dems are getting the message as well. And that's pretty obvious. With, and you can sort of see this in this interview here. Yes, yeah, somebody has to be telling them that the perpetuation of the covid status quo is politically valuable because it's not medically valuable as and it's not you know it's not justified by the circumstances christine's christine's theory is probably as good as it gets that this is a a backdoor to expanding the the welfare state the entitlement state and the public generally responds favorably to that right i think you can explain another way too which is that there are there is a kind of consensus among maybe you call them the public health bureaucracy, you know, maybe is the best way to say that, because I agree with you that there isn't necessarily a medical consensus. But if you have a bunch of people with 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 megaphones saying it's too soon, you can't pull back, it's going to be bad. And then you get unlucky. And we really do have a serious sort of, you know, wave again with another variant and it, but this time with much more gruesome effect. Um, well, then they would say that that's the killer and that since they, they don't have any that someone like Rachel Walensky will Michelle Walensky will never acknowledge that we don't need to do this stuff anymore, then that's kind of like almost a threat from the public health bureaucracy. Like we will be the ones to tell you if you if you if you if you if you end the emergency that you shouldn't have done it and that this was a mistake and you will get the blame for uh, going against our advice. Right. I guess I, I, I find it utterly. But, I mean, your argument, and I think my argument at this point is that we are so fed up with the public health bureaucracy. Who gives a damn whether, you know, whether they whatever they say, because they've gotten so many other things wrong. But that is I don't think how, that's not how Democrats and that's certainly not how the White House sees it. Yeah, I mean, you're talking a preemptive state of emergency for no, conditions. Uh, but, but that's what you're describing. You're, no, you're but describing it's similar to it's similar to under Trump, right? Because under Trump, even though he was all over the place, he kind of like subcontracted everything to Fauci, right? I mean, it was like Fauci became, you know, the word for everything else. It was a very different time. We didn't have vaccines for until the very end of the Trump presidency. But it's a little bit like that. It's like, are you really going to go against, you know, the head of the CDC on this? Are you really going to do that? Because if you're wrong, you're going to look you're, you're going to look really bad and you're going to lose the sort of a, what what biden considers to be i'm the covid grown-up and you know but Trump that's where I, but but that's i think that's right but that's where there's uh, that's distinct from what i think a vast majority of americans now feel not just because we do have vaccines and and things have changed with regard to the pandem- pandemic but because the democratic party elite uh, and the media elite love to listen to other elite and nod their heads and smile and say, yes, we're the responsible ones and we'll mask up and we'll do all these things. And you're right. Of course, we'll be we'll have our Zoom lifestyle now and we'll complain about it in the in style pieces in The New York Times because it's so hard for us in our pajamas, like all this stuff, like the fact that I know that, that people are talking jokingly about now I have to wear hard pants again instead of my soft pants. I'm like, you people are living in another bubble than the rest of the world. The rest of the world looks at this stuff and says, 
you know, this, this doesn't make sense that we cannot, we're not living in a state of emergency and yet emergency is guiding and giving uh, undue, unaccountable un, un authority to people who we elected to just do their jobs, to Abe's point, to pick up the garbage, to educate our kids, to do all these things that they failed to do uh, at, a, at a pretty disconcerting level for a couple of years now. A perpetual state of emergency for hypothetical conditions that do not yet exist alters and I would argue abrogates the social contract. Absolutely. We would otherwise have a perpetual state of emergency in California because there could be an earthquake. Florida should I, be under I, a state I, of emergency totally from May right. to October because it's hurricane season. That's I'm just trying to get inside the, 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 the their their rationale. You know, I mean, they I trust experts, even experts who are completely irrational about how people need about the risk. It's really about risk. A lot of this is about risk assessment and how and Noah's been been beating this drum, I think, very effectively for a couple of years now. Heroically, Norm I would add. Yes. Yeah, normal by the way, people, at a time yes. when when people were accusing Noah of of being a merchant of death. Exactly. No, and so normal I, you know, people assess risk. Off. Kudos. Normal people assess risk in a way that's far more rational these days than elites assess risk. We see it in, in, in a lot of areas of culture and society. Okay, so but this hold is on, you get to you get to something very important there, Christine, which is the elites. This is their identity. This is a deep and core view. And we saw the seeds of this for the last 20 years. Democrats are the party of science. All of these, you know, Yahoo Republicans are just prone to disinformation. They'll believe all this foreign propaganda that we're the we 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 believe in expertise. And that's the and the, this is like a huge theme. It's like this is the Atlantic magazine now is the magazine of the kind of the reification of the expert class. And it becomes a really damaging, I think, kind of like self-flicking ice cream cone for the for, <laughs> for the Democrats at this point, because it's like they can't get out of that loop. They can't they can't assess it a little differently. And they are so they're so convinced that the in a way, in a weird way, in the same way that you could say that there's been an antecedent of this for the Republicans, like, you know, there's always been a kind of skepticism of elite consensus and a feeling that like that things were you're more rigged and less certain than than, than you know, the, the, the people at the commanding heights of the culture and so forth are saying the opposite exists for the Democrats. And now they're really stuck because. The people who are the public health bureaucracy are closest to the problem can't see, see, see these basic points that you're making, um, and it's not connecting with voters at this point. So, that is the fatal conceit of all technocratic yeah. impulses, right? Yeah. Eventually, you, you convince yourself that the public doesn't know what they want and doesn't doesn't know does won't make the proper decisions to serve themselves or the greater good, and therefore they need to be guided in that direction. And when they're not. When the pandas just won't screw to save the species, you come to resent them. You really hate the people that you're trying to because you're just trying to make them do what's good for them and they just won't do it. You know, there's also something else here, which is that this is kind of all the elites have right now. Um, the, the, <laughs> in, 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 inflation is not going to sort of, you know, go disappear at the snap of a finger. They, 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 they're not going to be able to sort of make pronouncements suddenly on that. Um, that's going to that are, that are going to make anyone feel better. Uh, uh, the war in Ukraine is, you know, it's 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 in flux. There's you know, there's there's we, we, we are now stepping up our, our involvement and, and our contributions. But that that's going to play out. Um, but this they can say. We are here. This is a state of emergency. Listen to us. Yeah. Um, 
perfect transition. This is why it's very crime, important. Crime is another crime. Crime's not going to disappear overnight. It's going to take a long time. Um, so, yeah. I, I know that it's a cliche and you shouldn't get into this because, you know, there's a, there's you, you can't say that you win by losing, but I actually think it'll be really good for the Democratic Party if they get blown out in November because that will, if it's a serious blowout, if it's like they lose the Senate and they, you know, they lose like 40 or 50, 60 seats or something like that, that will force a kind of reckoning on some of these issues, which are, which will be in the end, in the long run, healthier for the Democratic Party. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, again, I think, you know, I, I'm worried that the Republicans can screw it up, especially with Trump, you know, saying all oh, this is about the 2020 election now was stolen. On the other hand, um, if they if, if, if they get blown out, it'll be good for the Democrats because that'll force them to sort of reassess on a basic level, we hope. Yeah, I don't agree. I don't think that'll happen. Uh, it didn't happen to Republicans after 2020. It won't happen to Democrats. They'll say we weren't progressive enough. But 2020 was much closer. No, no. 2020 was I mean, if you 20, I don't think they lost the White House, Eli, and they didn't care. I know they lost the White House and they didn't care, but they and they lost the Senate, which they should have kept. But it was a close enough election. They outperformed a lot of expectations. I'm not arguing the cheering that it section was a takes good, over. It was the good. The MAGA for the cheering section took over after 2020. The progressive cheering section will take over this time. We weren't progressive enough. We didn't give people enough money. We didn't regulate the hell out of everything. They'll convince themselves of some rationale to justify what they've been doing. That's the name of the game now. The no, echo some, chambers. Some some will, but not not others. You think you think Josh is Abigail and the Spanberger the voice of the party today? No, I'm not saying no, no. she's not. But there are enough Democrats who are currently there are enough Democrats who in the party that they need in these sort of purple and more moderate districts to keep a majority in Congress that they will have to at a certain point. I'm not arguing that you're right. The progressives, the Twitter resistance types will come up with any number of fanciful explanations uh, to avoid a reckoning. But they, it'll be very difficult. And, and that and that and that kind of political calamity like that has in the past been a, a forcing mechanism. And I don't think 2020 was the same level of political calamity because it's it still kind of confirmed that America is a 50 50 country. If, if they get blown out in the midterms, th this this will expose that the agenda of safetyism, uh, you know, elite emergency measures, wokeness, et cetera, are, you know, a, a sliver, a minority of the country and that you, they can't you can't you can't be a, 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 a ruling coalition with it. Right. All right. So before we run out of time, OK, I want to squeeze something and that's very parochial. But nevertheless, I'm sitting in the captain's chair, so I'm going to do it um, in The New York Times today. This is illustrative, I think, of the kind of outlook that we're been, we've been talking about here on the progressive left. There's a guest essay. Um, by a woman named Jessica Stoltzberg uh, entitled, quote, here's a better way to deal with your leaves. Your neighbors and the planet will thank you. Now, um, this will be of no interest to anybody who doesn't have leaves to deal with on a, a twice annual basis, but I'm one of those people. Uh, and the question that she's addressing here is community standards around leaf blowers. Uh, leaf blowers, gas powered leaf blowers are quote, without dispute, harmful to the environment, to neighbors, to workers who carry them on their backs. Uh, these hazards have been the subject of countless articles. So what's her solution? The fix is easy. Electric leaf blowers. 
They're effective, they're available, they're affordable. They emit no fossil fuel pollution. The decibel output is safe. And the best part, to make the switch requires only the simplicity and speed of personal decisions. Yours, today. It really sounds like an infomercial. Um, Mrs. Stoltzberg lives in Montclair, New Jersey. For those of you who don't know Montclair, New Jersey, when you think of New Jersey, it looks like Montclair. It's uh, small, very compact. Um, houses, most of them houses are built in the 1910s, 1920s. It's, it's a lovely little commuter neighborhood just outside New York City. Um, it is not a place where people have a lot of leaves because they have maybe a tree, maybe two on their property, five at most, and they're usually deal-withable. And I have an electric leaf blower because I used to live on a 6,000 foot plot and I had a single tree and it was sufficient for my needs. I now have a ridiculous amount of trees on three acres of land. An electric leaf blower does not cut it. A gas leaf blower has the power you need to get the leaves off your property. An electric leaf blower will not do the job and then will die halfway through the job. That's just the fact of electric leaf blowers. I like electric lawn equipment but they're, they're good for small jobs. They're not good for big jobs. Anybody who lives on any land needs power. And this is just another thing. And they're, because they're making this uh, in statute at local levels, uh, you're no longer allowed to buy or use these things. It's just another thing that they're doing to annoy you. They're taking away my state plastic bags for shopping in May. You can't use plastic bags anymore. Now I know everybody's like, no, move out of New Jersey. Get lost. This is my homeland. Like the Ukrainians, I will take to the hills and fight for it. But they're going to do it anyway. They're going to get rid of electric leaf flows. They're putting the ethanol now in the gas. That makes your, your small engines die and seize up. It's just little annoyances everywhere. And even if you try to not sweat the small stuff, as I do consciously, the small stuff mounts. It has a cumulative effect of just annoying you to the point for no discernible benefit other than to annoy you for, so again, hypotheticals. No, the pain is the point here. The pain is the point when when wealthy Tesla owners who are in the Democratic Party tell you to just buy an electric car if you're worried about gas. The pain is the point. They did this in D.C. They they eliminated uh, the use of gas powered leaf blowers. Interestingly, they didn't make the environmental argument so much here in D.C., where everybody you know was a student body president and is entitled to be treated like royalty. It was because people were complaining about the noise. The noise was just just too awful. If you, you live in a city, for crying out loud, like you're going to hear noise. You're going to hear traffic noise, sirens. You know, I, it's it's a noisy place if you live in a city. But they they use that argument. It was a quality of life argument. But the the idea of what makes a quality of life is almost always technocratically elite top down. It's, it's so much better if you drive an electric car, because you know, you're doing good for the environment. It's, it's just better not to have the noise of a leaf floor. They don't actually care if it harms regular people because they're not regular people. They're wealthy, higher educated. They are, they are not the average American. And they, for all of their concern about, you know, at, at election time about average Americans, they don't really know how average Americans live day to day and their needs. So I think that they would say to you, Noah, well, your minor annoyance is a small price to pay for the entire globe being, a, you know, a half a degree less hot. Like, you know, the, the, the rhetoric. I know exactly what the they point. would say. Yeah, precisely. They would say that you have to be imposed upon and annoyed yes. for, the, for the hypothetical for benefit. The better good. Uh, yes. yeah, right. An, an indiscernible benefit that might uh, you know, gen help the planet a decade down the road. That is not yes. a sufficient reward for the amount of labor that they're making you do. They're, they're asking you to perform. Right. 
hours of extra labor. Um, and you think that people won't vote against that if they have the opportunity? You're telling them that labor is money. Right. Labor costs money. This is a this is a commodity that is actually quantifiable. Whereas you're advocating something that isn't quantifiable, isn't measurable, isn't discernible. Uh, you can't even see it. But it goes to Eli's earlier point. It's it's a way. It's sanctimony, and that sanct you can't put a price on that's, the, the, the that's glorious the worst feeling part of, of all of it. The worst exactly. part of all of it is when you voice any of these concerns, you are buried in condescension, as though that makes the sentiment go away. It gas-powered leaf blowers are systemically racist and are killing trans kids. <laughs> Sorry. That might actually be in the article. I stopped reading. Yeah. I mean, I got just... to the point of just red faced spit fleckled all over my phone. Uh, so, yeah, that probably is down there in one of the an opposition to throat clearing. An, an opposition to efforts to ban gas powered uh, leaf blowers is Russian disinformation. <laughs> it's, it's just it's, just, it's the same thing. It's like it's a it's a plug and play. It's like they it's mad libs. Everything is it comes down to these like big issues. You're a horrible human being if you disagree with me. And I can't even allow you to voice your dissent uh, because you're deceiving other people on social. It's just terrible. I, I'm with you. It's enough to I'm not going to vote for Trump. I understand all the dangers with that level of populism. But again, I mean, it's a cliche, but this is how we get Trump. This kind of crap. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, by the way, would say it's not we, we use this term elites. And I think it's it's largely correct, but it, it's not. It's a lot of elites who hate it too. <laughs> no, but you're but you're right. It's it's a sort of condition, especially the reaction to it, the condescension and the sneering right. and the snide dismissal of your of your concerns. That's what gets Trump insofar as you get a, a figure that is utterly contemptuous of you right. and your arguments and gives you no credence and makes no effort to um, make a convincing, compelling argument to people who might be persuadable, but are still on the fence about right, your because, arguments. Because he treated the elite the way people had felt treated by the elite for a long time. Finally, they had an avatar who was like, we're going to treat these people with the same disdain and contempt that they have long treated us. And they love that. I mean, it was a it was a devil's bargain, as we now know, but it's completely understandable. It's amazing that 18 years ago, Barack Obama kind of became a national figure when he was running for the Illinois Senate by giving that famous blue state America, red state America speech in which he emphasized the commonalities of Americans and how we were all like, you know, believed in a one mighty God and, and cared about the flag and everything like that. In the course of almost 20 years, uh, that kind of thing is gone. And it's just, you know, uh, you know, we have to do something to stop these unwashed barbarians. Well, in, in truth, <clears throat> that was gone the second he started governing. Um, Fair enough. I, yeah. I, 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 well, you know, it was gone by the end of the convention. He was addressing <laughs> reporting for duty. John Kerry. <laughs> um, I remember that. I do remember that. But with that, we're going to have to go because now we're going to go down memory lane and uh, no one wants to go there. Uh, thank you, Eli. We appreciate it. John, oh, we'll be thank back you. next week. Um, so for Abe, Christine, and the absent John Podhortz, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.